This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk and company avoid being clipped on a planet without buttons. Will they find fashionable enough lids to cheese it, or will they have to rub out the boss? Tune in and find out! Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, apparently the Vintage Slang Podcast. Ah, indeed. This week, I'm joined, <laughs> as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And we watched a classic, silly episode of Star Trek today. Very silly, very silly. The episode is called A Piece of the Action, but it is probably more recognizable as The Mobster Planet. Yes. A planet entirely filled with mobsters, somehow. <laughs> yeah, they do a very bad job of explaining any of that. They wanted to write the Star Trek people interacting with a mob thing, and for some reason, they've decided that having alternate Earth-like planets with planet-wide cultures that resemble certain things is easier than writing in time travel. I guess I can appreciate they don't just fall back on time travel constantly, but if they had, it might have made Star Trek in the long run a very different show. Well, there's at least, like, four times when it seems like they really want time travel, but instead they just go, well, here's a planet that's exactly like Earth, except it's still Roman times or something. Or, uh, you know, uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, Nazis at least once. Uh, there's some other, uh, you know, cowboy planet, right? Um yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's at least one cowboy planet. Nazi episode's actually not too far off. Just a couple more after this one, I think. Yep. But weirdly enough, uh, it's not written by the same person, uh, at least uh, unless you count rewrites. Well, the person who did write this episode, it was co-written by David P. Harmon and Gene L. Kuhn. Now, Kuhn we've seen a lot of things out of and usually writes pretty good episodes. Uh... Harmon wrote a previous episode that I forgot to write down. Oh, The Deadly Years. There it is. <laughs> Which was also okay. I guess he has a, 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 a happenstance for, we want an episode where it's Star Trek, but this. In addition to writing Deadly Years, Harmon wrote a lot of other TV shows and some movies, including, and I did not even know these existed, two out of the three made-for-TV Gilligan's Island movies. One, More you know. <laughs> the first one, Rescue from Gilligan's Island, in which they get off the island. Hooray! They're saved! But then immediately get stranded back on the island by the end of the movie. Whoops. Hmm. And the third of the Gilligan's Island movies called The Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. So the Harm Globetrotters obviously get off the island by the end, but nobody else does? So <laughs> the, this is just too interesting. The second movie, which they uh, he did not write, was meant to be a way to spin off the Gilligan's Island franchise into a Love Boat-style weekly comedy romance TV show. So they get off of the island, but then come back and open a resort that people can come to. So now the island is like a place where people come and go from. 
And that didn't get picked up for a TV show, but then by the third movie, they are operating a resort in which the Harlem Globetrotters come and visit. They just found themselves in love with the island so much they decided just to live there forever. Yes. And have famous visitors. Cool. Yeah. All right. So it's just, it's insane. Like the, the extended Gilligan's Island universe that I had no idea existed except for half of it was written by the same person who wrote this episode. No, uh, I guess uh, in some ways it, it gives me a similar vibe to uh, the Golden Girls spinoff. Oh, I didn't even know there was one of those. Uh, so, uh, I think it's Sophia, Rose, and, uh, uh and, um, Blanche, uh, like, get a hotel and rent a hotel together. I could see that working. <laughs> yeah. They probably did. Uh, B. Arthur did not, you know, no one remembers it. Dorothy, so, yeah. <laughs> they lasted the season, and, yeah, that was <laughs> it, so. But anyway, Star Trek. <laughs> yes. The thing we were talking about. There are innumerable <laughs> guest stars in this episode. Because it's just a city that's like filled with random people. Yeah, like ladies that they meet on the street that talk about money. Yeah, credited as woman one and woman two. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> but the two major guest stars that they interact with through most of the episode are Anthony Caruso playing a man named Bella Oxmix. Yeah, say that ten times fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ox mix. Just add water. Instant ox. He plays lots of gangsters and various things. Yes. Also, I should just mention, so it's pronounced ox mix, and on the Wikipedia and the transcript, it is spelled with an X, like ox. But on the posters and signs that they have in the episode, it's spelled with a K, so it is spelled ox mix. And apparently he is credited in the episode as Bella, so the official credit doesn't know which way to spell it. The script spelled it with a K, but apparently did not include a pronunciation guide. That That's a failure on the, the, their work there. Um, yeah, heck, even the uh, the audio play that I uh, you know, you know, was involved in, uh, that's starting to come out at some point here. Um, yeah, they even had a pronunciation guide, and that's like a fan work. My games, guys. <laughs> Now, apparently it's spelled ox mix in a lot of the uh, expanded stuff, like the books and things where he appears as a character, apparently. Anyway, it was just interesting because they were saying ox mix and then all of a sudden there's this poster that says ox, this is ox mix. And it's like, what, what is going on? Maybe it was some sort of, uh, you know, a counter propaganda effort one of the other bosses was doing. The other boss who we interact with, you say, is played by Vic Tayback. He is playing a character named Jojo Cracko. He has some mojo going on, I think. Yeah. <laughs> he is known uh, for his film role in a film called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and apparently his role on a TV show called Alice. Uh, he was also on the love boat as various random people. Yeah, so around... Yeah. <laughs> oh man, he was on uh, Murder She Wrote too. Oh, uh, one-time character. The anyway. freaking <laughs> So those are the main characters, but the the character list for this reads like they are the like reads like they're the like Marx Brothers. Cuz we've got Teppo and Hood and Zabo. <laughs> we've got Cracko, Kalo, Zabo, Teppo. We need a Groucho, and we got the complete set. So uh, playing a tabletop game with uh, some folks recently, uh, Kingdom Death, 
our initial group were names after four of the, at least four of the Marx Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> we should jump in. We've already had three asides, which probably leads you to to figure out about how much we have to say about this episode. <clears throat> so yes, a piece of the action. The Enterprise arrives at Planet Sigma Lotia 2. It's a heck of names in this one. Yes. I, I wrote it down as Yosha. <laughs> they contact so. a local leader named Oxmix. He is apparently the boss. The boss. Wait, there's a song about this. Oh, oh I want to be the boss. I want to be. I want to be. Anyway. They explain to Mr. Oxmix that they are there because they received a distress call last month from a ship known as the Horizon. But because the Horizon used old radio communication, and this planet is actually very far away from Earth, the ship actually left the planet about a hundred years ago. So this, uh, you know, this planet must be like a hundred light years from Earth, or at least somewhere where the Federation would pick up on the signal. Something along those lines. <laughs> They arrange to beam down, according to Oxmix's very odd and confused directions, at the end of the block near a fire hydrant. It's like, okay, I, I guess we can figure this out. Um, scan the planet. Find a fire hydrant near where he's hanging out. Assuming you know what that is. On the way, they discuss whether or not there's been any cultural contamination that the visit of the Horizon may have caused, as they arrived before the non-interference directive that they have now. And apparently the Latotians, or Latians, can't remember how I said it, are described as incredibly imitative people. That's a weird turn of phrase there. They say it a few times, though. Kirk, McCoy, and Spock beam down to Chicago. Yes, Chicago in the 1920s specifically. With women in 20s dresses and men in three-piece suits carrying Tommy guns. Yes, like... Everybody's dressed like this. Everybody. The, the crew are soon put at gunpoint by two men who apparently work for Oxmix. They take the crew's weapons and communicators, all while confusing them with a numerous amounts of period slang. Hmm. These nearly wells, they uh, are up to no good. They are taken to see the boss, but on the way there's a drive-by shooting that kills a man in the street. This is apparently the very common... Occurrence in the work of the rival known as Krako. Hmm, it's getting uh, borderline murder cultish here again. The guards seem very unconcerned, as do two women who run up to complain about the state of street lights and demand that Oxmix fix them. Apparently, he is the local governmental official leader type person. So he's the boss in a very literal sense. They are brought into Oxmix's office. It's a hard one. To meet the man himself with some back and forth, he explains that he is the boss of this territory, which happens to be the largest in the world, and he runs everything there. So this is uh, must be, you know, hundreds or even thousands of miles uh, across, and, you know, there should not be any other bosses nearby, because that would be silly to have them in your own city. Yeah, or maybe this planet only has a very, very small landmass. And maybe one city. <laughs> there are a few other bosses around who have their own territories and they are in a constant state of hostility there are no other forms of government on the entire planet it's uh, starting to sound a little futile to me yeah a little bit Spock notices a book ceremoniously stored on a lectern in the back of the room 
The book is a history of the old Chicago mobs written in the 1990s. It is apparently one of the few things that the Horizon left when they visited a hundred years ago, along with a bunch of textbooks that very conveniently provide instructions on how to make all of the period-appropriate technology. I don't know, this seems a little too convenient to me. This almost seems like a setup. Yeah, we're gonna leave this book and this instruction on how to make radios, but not like modern radios, like 1920s radios. And cars, which we don't use anymore because we have spaceships. And, <laughs> <laughs> and some sort of, uh, you know, design book on period outfits. <laughs> and, and architecture. architecture. <laughs> now Oxmix reveals his actual motivations for bringing them all down. He is going to hold the crew hostage until they give him their advanced weaponry so that he can take over from all of the other bosses. You know, I guess this is uh, some way to get a bit of leverage on everybody else. And uh, yeah, and then you can shout curtains and uh, see a lot and then and then you end. Yeah, that's how that works. <laughs> Kirk flat out refuses to deal with this person. So he and the others are taken to a warehouse to be stored for a while while Oxmix calls Scotty on the bridge of the ship. Scotty is also incredibly confused by 20s era slang, but gets the gist that they have eight hours to give Oxmix everything he wants or the crew will be killed. Yeah, you've got your crew on uh, ice, uh, you know, Mr. Scotty Man. Uh, get us some pea shooters, and otherwise they'll be uh, you know, uh, sleep with the fishes. I keep saying heaters. But you thought, like, Scotty goes, look up what a heater is instead of, why would they want heaters? We can send them some heaters. <laughs> Maybe there's something uh, funky going on with the Universal Translator at this particular moment. <laughs> In the warehouse, the crew discusses how a book on Old Chicago could have done this. It couldn't have, so there we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this makes no sense. Okay, moving on. <laughs> and how a time when the government broke completely down and gangs took over is probably not the best way to base a society. Yes. <laughs> Kirk wants Spock to ask the computer about what to do about this very oddly specific situation. But Spock points out he has no access to the computer, but Kirk apparently has an idea on how to rectify that. Alright, so this computer thing must be really important. Let's, let's figure this out to get you up to be able to communicate with the computer. Kirk approaches the guards who are playing poker and makes fun of them for playing such a childish game and tells them about a game that he knows called Fizzbin. How, do one, how does one play Fizzbin? This is a simple game where the rules change based on the day of the week and anything that Kirk feels like at the time. <laughs> it's also a very bad bluff that confuses Spock for a while. It's not, it's not bad, but it's very stupid. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it pings my silly meter very, very high. As the guards become engrossed in the incomprehensible explanation, Kirk throws a table at him, and he and Spock knock out all of the other guards. Get tabled, sir! Kirk tells the others to find a radio and contact the ship, and he is going to confront Oxmix, but no sooner does Kirk leave than he is immediately captured again. Well, this sucks. Um, so I guess we're going to go back to uh, Oxmix's place. He's going to lecture me for a while. Is, is that what's going to go on? Well, first Spock and McCoy find a radio station, and after incapacitating the woman who's running it, Spock contacts the ship to be beamed up. Alright, uh, beam me up, Scotty. Uh, we'll uh, try to uh, avoid any uh, confusing uh, language while we're coming up. Kirk is taken to meet the other boss, Krakow. Krakow. I keep wanting to Krakow. say Krakow because it sounds like an actual name of something. 
Uh, well, there's Krakow and uh, Poland there. Krakow wants exactly the same deal that Oxmix does, but he is willing to give Kirk a third of his profit, which is actually a much better offer than Oxmix had. Just give us the thing or die versus give us the thing uh, and you'll get money. Okay. <laughs> Kirk again refuses and is put into a small room where he promptly starts taking apart a radio. Uh, he's going to be able to uh, reprogram it and uh, call up the ship and get beamed up as well, right? You'd think. Back on the ship, Spock is distressed because the computer does not have a solution for how to bring a planet back after it has mcgoddled its entire government and civilization off of a fictionalized Chicago mob. Yeah, because that makes no sense. <laughs> Computer's like, what? <laughs> so I guess that whole uh, get up to the Enterprise to, con uh, to communicate with the computer didn't actually pan out at all. Hmm. But then Oxmix calls to let them know that Krakow has kidnapped Kirk and that they better come down there and he'll help them get Kirk and you can trust him this time, no backsies. For reals, yeah. <laughs> In the meantime, Kirk uses a part of the radio to trip one of the guards that comes in the room. So I guess he wasn't going to use his communication device. Yeah, he just needed a piece of wire or something, I guess. Then he uses a blanket to incapacitate the other guard. <laughs> And grabs their guns, escaping again. So, um, you know, we got two escapes so far. Can we make it a third? <laughs> Spock and McCoy beam down to Oxmix's office. It's a trap. But no sooner are guns pointed at them that Kirk runs in from behind them with his own gun, turning the tables. Oh no, uh, wait, this, this is a third escape, sorry. Yeah, so far we have three kidnappings and three escapes in half the episode. <laughs> yep. Spock reports that they've found no way to fix the planet, so Kirk decides that he needs to kidnap Krakow. Okay, then I guess we go kidnapping. He and Spock get the suits off of two of the guards, and then spend a long time figuring out how to use a car. Which is kind of amusing when you, you know, for, for you know, Kirk's like, hmm, this is going to make sense. I'm going to be the big man, and I'm going to drive the vehicle around, and I'll be, everything will be great. And so they start off, and he's terrible at driving. <laughs> they reach Krakow's office with the sputtering, backfiring, misdriven car. <laughs> with Spock critiquing Kirk's driving. <laughs> the entrance to the office is too heavily guarded, but then a weird kid comes up to them pretending to stab people with knives and offers to help if he can get a piece of whatever they're doing. Vaguely. Kirk agrees, and the kid runs up to the guards, pretends to be hurt, and calls for his dad. Kirk and Spock run up, so apparently they can have two dads in this planet. That's neat. Then, once close enough, they knock out all the guards. This kid is never seen again. Yeah, well, this, the kid will clearly come back, uh, you, know, at, you know, in a uh, novelization or something like that, demanding that uh, he get that, the, the piece of the action that he was promised, and when he doesn't, he'll get uh, ultimate revenge on the Enterprise crew, and uh, Kirk will have to make a life-death uh, decision or something like that. Maybe. Wouldn't surprise me. I have no idea if this actually ever happened, but it'd be kind of cool if it did. Anyway. <laughs> Kirk and Spock manage to surprise Krakow, or so they think, as they are immediately captured for the fourth time. Hmm, maybe we shouldn't have, like, paused and let the villain monologue at us while he had other dudes in the building. Possibly. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Krakow has Kirk call the ship to get him his guns, but Kirk uses the opportunity to tell Scotty where Krakow is standing, and he beams him aboard the Enterprise. Hmm. I guess uh, we've captured you this time. Ha-ho! <laughs> 
Kirk and Spock, apparently now unhindered by guards, because the boss disappeared, run back to the car, and do another overly long comedy bit about how Kirk can't drive. They go back to Oxmix's office, and Kirk apparently has some convoluted plan where he wants to get Oxmix to call the other bosses, then have Scotty use the phone signal to find where they are and transport them to Oxmix's office. So it's time to kidnap everyone! Once there, Kirk has picked up the slang and things, and explains that the Federation is here to take over, and that they want them to all stop fighting because the Federation doesn't want any trouble running the planet. Yeah, you guys gotta be uh, cooperating, see? You gotta you know, you know, go make a lot of money. We're, we're gonna be taking 40%, the rest of you guys will get the rest. Uh, understand that? But apparently, being transported through thin air and having seen the ship isn't enough for them to think that these people mean business and they immediately capture Kirk and everyone again. Yes. <laughs> this is number five, number six at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Just then... Krakow's men arrive because they are coming to attack Oxmix because they figure that's why their boss disappeared because their rival did something. (laughs) So they all arrive outside with machine guns. Kirk asks if he can call his ship to say goodbye before he's killed. And instead of saying goodbye, he orders the ship to stun everyone on the planet. (laughs) Just phaser everything. It'll be great. Yeah. (laughs) Which I didn't know you could set a ship's phasers to mass stun why don't they do this all the time that would make sense it's like up oh, the crew's in trouble mass stun everyone and sort it out later <laughs> Just knock everyone out <laughs> great this convinces all of the bosses that they should be cooperative because death lasers from space <laughs> we can rain fire down from the sky- from the heavens now do what we say or else Kirk installs Oxmix as planetary dictator with Krakow as his second because these are the only two people he knows. Yes. And this will for sure not end a disaster and murder. Yep. Right? The government is unified. We're good. They return to the ship. Let's leave before anything happens. <laughs> back on the bridge, McCoy is upset that he lost his communicator back on the planet somewhere. Don't. Kirk points out that they could use this to reverse engineer all of the Federation's technology. So I guess they have to worry about having to owe that piece of the action pretty soon then. Hmm. Kirk says, now you're going to come and demand a piece of our action. The end. That's literally the last line. Wow, this episode's really silly. (laughs) It's very silly and makes no sense and has some troubling implications if you think about it for more than a second. Yep. All over the place. Uh, but I want to, before we get to too much other stuff, I think I want to point out the biggest, I guess, missed opportunity with this sort of general setup. You got a planet full of mobsters, right? And they run the place, right? But there's no counter uh, 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 counter forces involved. Uh, so there's no police, there's no reporters, there's no... Random civilians, everyone's involved with the mob 100%, right? That makes it boring. Yes, it does. <laughs> it's like, okay, just once again, we're just in a feudal society where the, the entire power structure is this. We just have a, a certain caste to it, so it's all mafia style. Okay, how is this different than any other kind of planet like this? I mean, it's just a, yeah, they, they made it into a weird little feudal dictatorship thing. 
styled yes. in suits. <laughs> with sharp-dressed men with tommy guns everywhere. Hmm. So, should we talk about the history of Chicago and the Mafia in the 1920s, or do you want to start with Hobbes? Does Hobbes not, uh, is that is that a good lead in to the Mafia stuff, or is the Mafia stuff leading a good lead into the Hobbes? Neither stuff? one really leads. One is just one is straight up history, and the other one is troubling philosophy. All right, well, let's start with the, uh, the the straight up history, so give people some context. All right, so. 1920s, you have Prohibition, which in the United States is a growing movement called the Temperance Movement, which blamed alcohol for a lot of society's troubles and eventually is able to get a full-on amendment to the United States Constitution that prohibits the sale of alcohol. Yeah, The moral decay of, of our society, our fabric is being torn apart and clearly we need something to blame, so we're going to blame all the alcohol. So get rid of the alcohol, and that will solve all our problems forever. Let's do the thing. And so they did, and what happened? What and happened? everyone believes that is the single most stupid thing that ever happened in the entire history of the United States after slavery, because it instilled organized crime to fill the needs of alcohol, it destabilized our tax system, which at the time was almost entirely based on the proceeds of alcohol. Uh, it <laughs> introduced a lot of corruption into local governments who were then run by the mob. The combination of the lack of funding and the rise of organized crime led to a massive downfall in the cities. All of this immediately preceded the mass stock market crash that led into the Great Depression. All bad time. Yeah, so basically set up a massive destabilization uh, that made the uh, the nation as a total uh, vulnerable for things getting even worse. Now, that, of course, is the oversimplified clean version that you get in normal history classes. <laughs> but there are a lot of more, more gritties. If you want to look at something like the 1920s Chicago-style mobs, and obviously the kind of mob boss the famous mob boss idea that they use in this episode of the celebrity gangster is very very heavily based on a man named al capone who uh, of, of having a vault fame yeah <laughs> <laughs> he was actually very unusual in the fact that he wanted to be a celebrity most organized crime didn't want attention Al Capone made himself available for interviews. He tried to be kind of an upper-class member of society. He was very much in the public spotlight. If you're in the public spotlight, you can get people that are not directly, uh, you know, uh, you know, part of your organization to start supporting you because, it's like, hey, this person's famous. Maybe if I scratch their back, they'll scratch mine. Kinda. He had a lot of goodwill, and that's the celebrity angle that they're working with but if you want to talk about the actual mob stuff you have to go way back to just after world war one in so if you're dealing with the actual mob and italian mafia which al capone was an italian american second generation immigrant so based a lot on that even though a lot of 
um, immigrant communities kind of had their own version. They were fairly segregated, like the you had an Irish gang system and a German gang system and an Italian gang system that didn't really play nice. Uh, by the time you get to the 1920s, the Italian-American uh, had kind of taken over most of the major areas, which is why we think of it as the mob or mafia. Yeah. Like, uh, it's like, but the, 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 you know, there's, there's very, you know, nationalist uh, sort of specific sort of, uh, you know, aspects there. And it is very, very dangerous to sort of always associate mafia organized crime with only a specific country. But the mob or mafia itself actually got its start in Sicily because there was a lot of kind of government's corruption and ignoring of people in that area at that time and some French oppression coming in. So yeah, local people so like way back. Local people organized themselves into this kind of anti-French organization, but they were the ones who kept things running when the government kind of abandoned them. Sort of uh, filling in the uh, power vacuum, like the whole uh, prohibition thing you just uh, described. So then uh, when a lot of Italians immigrated to the United States along with Germans and other Europeans and people from Ireland, uh, that was kind of the great melting pot era when a lot of people were fleeing destabilized Europe just after World War I and the beginning of the like oppression of Jewish people in Europe. There was a lot of that kind of thing going on and so a lot of kind of unofficial refugees moving into the United States. That did two things that very much upped the immigrant population. It also spurred a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment that had been in the United States around that time. So you get sort of a situation where there's a group of people that have a common origin that are being uh, you know, treated poorly by the uh, you know, people they now find themselves around or uh, are surrounding them in the, in, the, in the new society that they're entering. And so they're more prone to perhaps stick together. Yes. They are oppressed minority groups. They bring over a lot of the same people who were like in these you know local organizations back in their homes and because of systematic racism in the united states they are not getting government support in the united states either so the same groups that had to fill in this gap in government support in the their original countries still had to maintain that same system here that is the backdrop against which you are going to hit the prohibition era which firstly um, a lot of european immigrants brought in socialist labor ideas like trade unions which the capitalist americans that were coming up especially in chicago which was a major industrialization center didn't really like the idea that you should treat your workers well and pay them. So they pay your workers? How quaint. Oh. They stoked too. a lot of anti-immigrant feeling to destabilize trade unions, which again is why there's a stereotype of organized crime and unions being so closely tied together. So uh, everyone saying I know trying to you know, there's sort of a, a a similar undercurrent of we we are trying to have a united sort of uh you know a group of action of uh of 
us to in order to get uh, the the quote piece of the action that we are deserved given all, what the labor that we're putting into this uh, this uh, society or business. And then finally, one of the other things that was brought in with immigrant communities was other cultures and their differing attitudes towards drinking, which the existing people in the United States, the people who didn't like immigrants, even though they also drank, they viewed immigrant drinking as wrong and a derivation of society. And that is part of what spurred on the temperance movement, this wave of anti-immigrant sentiment that linked immigration and drinking and led into the prohibition laws. So in other words, there, were, there was kind of a racist component there. It's, it kind of reminds me of um, the uh, differences uh, over a number of years in how different drug crimes uh, are, are treated here. Uh, specifically the, uh, the uh, cocaine versus crack uh, sort of a, a division there where cocaine gets you some pretty serious penalties, but crack gets you way more. Um, uh, yeah, and it's basically kind of the same thing as far as uh, the, you know, the, uh, you know, what you're sort of dealing with on the, you know, it's just a different form of a very similar item. Yeah, it's very, very similar. And to, on top of that, there were a lot of things like um, labor laws, as we know them today, were completely non-existent. So there were people, especially uh, dock workers who weren't well paid and were badly treated, were often paid a portion of their wages in whiskey. So there's just they are paying people in alcohol and then blaming them for being drunks and using that as part of an anti-immigrant sentiment to further reinforce the racist policies that they have against immigrants at this time. So it's a uh, kind of a rigged game overall. It's completely, so, yeah. So so it's it's kind of difficult to sort of then blame the people that are being you know, victimized by the system for wanting to do something else. <laughs> and then, once alcohol is made illegal, all of these groups that already exist in corrupt government circles that are basically keeping things running in the absence of governments wanting to help immigrant populations just start doing that uh largely starting in chicago what's one of the most famous areas both because of their large worker population but also because it was a place that made a lot of industrial alcohol which was still legal so it's like hey we got people that are still able to like know how to do this here and the uh, equipment that's very similar and uh yeah, you know, just kind of, you know, we'll just make some of them disappear and uh, set up our own warehouse over here. And the apparently major thing that Prohibition did was take all of these local organized crime gangs and put them in contact with each other. Because yeah, uh, now we, you know, we have a, a black market that we need to uh, enact trade through. And, well, if we're going to be buying or and or selling with people over there, we should probably know who they are. And, you know, before we had no reason to, we had no reason to care. Uh, yes, yeah, so I don't want to sound like this is being sugarcoated because most of the people you're dealing with were murderers. They were killing each other constantly in these gang wars and what's called the Chicago Beer Wars. 
there was a lot of violence and murdering and not just, you know, petty crime going on. These weren't, like, nice, misunderstood people. But the way these groups formed was very organic out of racism and corruption that came from the government basically ignoring large sections of the population in these cities. Yeah, you know, they've been basically denied the uh, access and protections of society for which they are supposed to live in and therefore are kind of just sort of setting up their own. And it just happens to come out like this, you know? Yeah, and the way that, that this created a massive amount of money, it moved people through society in this weird way. It arguably changed the makeup of America as we know it today. Uh, even like the Kennedys, like the, the Kennedy family that went into politics got their start as a mob boss, like rum runner. Booze for everyone and then vote for me. And there were some basic, there were some not horrible points like Al Capone, responsible for a lot of murders and death and was not a particularly nice person, but had some interesting points in interviews that the people he is selling this illegally made and transported alcohol to are high-ranking government officials and people in high society who supposedly should be enforcing these laws. Yeah, it seems the people that are enforcing the laws on everybody else don't think they apply to them. <laughs> Whoops. It's almost like this is complete crap. And what's very interesting, too, given the... There was a state of wealth inequality at the time because it was the beginning of industrialization and uh, moving into... Dang, I'm completely blanking on the word. Leading into eras of monopoly capitalism. Uh, so there was a mass amount of wealth inequality at the time. And one of the constant stories that you have from mob bosses is the intense level of generosity they had because they came from poor immigrant communities that were disparaged against by everyone so when they had wealth and power they gave it to poor people in their own communities so you know in addition to that celebrity stuff sort of building up uh, goodwill uh you can also have a situation where it's like well these are the people that are making sure that my old grandma is able to you know eat Versus the people, you know, on the city side or the state side or the federal side who couldn't give a toss if she starves. Uh, and so I'm going to be more uh, disposed to be helping out the, the mafia folks over here because they're actually going to be help, you know, taking care of us. Yes, there's actually this kind of interesting point that uh, it came from a book about New York in like the 70s and 80s. Um, but the point basically was that New York City goes through this sort of oscillation in its government between very, very corrupt, often organized crime-affiliated leaders and an incredibly corrupt system of city government. And then that goes for a little while, and then some sort of big reformer gets elected, and they're not collect connected to corruption at all. They're very straight-laced. They put through a lot of reforms and things that are meant to stamp out corruption, and then that works for a little while, and then it goes back to being a corrupt government. And one of the reasons for this is because each form of government, the corrupt and the non-corrupt, actually has very particular strengths that the other one does not. 
So, you know, a reform government arguably should do better. It can put through overarching reforms. It can take care of more people. It can change things up and, you know, institute large citywide policies that help a lot of people and change the way things are structurally run. But it's very bureaucratic and takes a long time to do anything. A corrupt government, if you have something like a bad street that needs repair and you live there and you go to your you know local crime boss guy and say hey we know each other can you get my street fixed they move it up the chain of corrupt government and get your street fixed there's a lot of very local uh, quick turnaround projects that can be done by a very corrupt government that a straight-laced bureaucratic government just can't handle Assuming that you are good with the mob uh, folks there. Yes. I mean, you might have some, you have a lot of quid pro quo going on because that's how that works, but your street gets fixed. And that's why they are theorizing, at least, you have this oscillation between super corrupt and super reform governments. And so you, you get a situation where one is not serving uh, the needs of uh, you know some select number of communities. So those communities uh, leverage their political power in order to get the corrupt government in place. Uh, when that corrupt government then uh, fails to serve the needs of everyone because they're being preferential to the groups that uh, managed to get them in power, then you know everyone else leverages it back and they get the reformers back in place. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting how the power dynamics work there. And so we, when we sort of like, go, you, know, you know, on a very surface level, it's like, oh, this is you know, you know, 100% good government, this is 100% bad government, it sort of ignores the underlying dynamics that uh, are causing these different sort of uh, trends and things like that. Uh, and being able to understand what those trends are and, you know, try to form future changes in power uh, uh, to be more responsive to, you know, if you don't like the, you know, the corrupt government to make that, more reformer government, more responsive, more able to be nimble, so that doesn't lead back to the corrupt government. You know, that's something that we need to be more um, aware of. But just that, that surface level uh, stuff at the top, that's not going to get us there. And that's why a lot of stuff kind of bugged me with the way they presented this episode of just knowing the history of Chicago and wanting to imitate it from this book turned into this that. It doesn't even function as a government. The people outside were complaining about how the streetlights weren't getting fixed. <laughs> yeah, so, in, in fact, it's the, uh, mo quote, mafia government here is just a city government that just happens to have a lot of murder. Yeah. <laughs> now, the thing that I feel like, if, if they'd done this instead, it would have eliminated basically every problem that I had with the plot of this episode, aside from the really stupid resolution that we'll get to in a minute. If instead of it being a history book, they'd said that the Horizon left 1960s era gangster movies and they'd imitated those, that would have been fine. You, know, you would have a little bit more interesting uh, dynamics uh, interplay. You'd have you know, the, the, uh, some form of uh, you know, government that's just horribly ineffectual as far as your uh, core plot goes. But it's sort of a, this is something that you know, we are actively sort of ignoring but it is something that we are playing against and that's sort of just how our roles in the society work now and if they'd uh, 
done it as a gangster movie they could have teamed up with the noir detective guy that would have been fun <laughs> it's like uh, a guest star they would root for hooray yeah <laughs> that would have been nice here's some yahoos <laughs> but that would have been a good idea I don't think they'd invented those yet and uh, I, I can't have someone possibly overshadowing Kirk either so you know I suppose talking of the revolution we can get to uh, we can get to Hobbes Alright, uh, let's, let's go over Hobbes, uh, uh, full Hobbes here. So, we've talked about Hobbes a little bit before. He was the state of nature dude. Uh, humans' life in nature was short, brutish, and horrible. And he was also English, so that's just a random factoid. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, it led into the obviously racist overtones of that idea. But the other thing with being English is he lived through a very, very brutal English Civil War in which he saw the complete and total breakdown of government and all the things that that entailed. Now, is that the, uh, the Glorious Revolution, was it? Probably. They were all glorious, weren't they? Yeah, some of them are glorious because, you know, somebody wins. Other times it's because somebody named it such. Or maybe it was just the English Civil War. I get these all mixed up. Sorry, folks in the UK, I'm messing things up. But I was thinking about Hobbes in relation to this episode because he had this very interesting idea about leaders and their role in a society, which is basically you need one and don't touch. So you gotta have a boss, otherwise, and you have to let the boss do the boss thing. Yes, no matter how bad. How corrupt, how ineffective, how horrible for the people involved a leader of a society is, changing them might be worse. Screw that noise. <laughs> Don't like Hobbes. <laughs> Which was very much seemed to be the idea that they were working off of here, of we don't know how to change this society back to whatever it was a hundred years ago, which is a weird place to start from anyway it's not like hey they left this book here a month ago and the society is starting to embrace its ideas let's do something about this it's this society has existed this way for a hundred years and now we need to go change it or at least for some number of decades but yeah it, but like and... if, unless you have some particularly long-lived people every single person on this planet was born into this society and so they really don't have a whole lot of attachment to what it was beforehand as far as, you know, continuity, given that they have gone this far into being mo mobsters. So just because they can't figure out a better way to do it, instill a friendly dictator, and now it's all fine. Uh, not only a friendly dictator, but one that it believes fully that they now work for you, which is a little weird too, but... Which is also the way that the United States was operating in the 1960s yeah let's <laughs> go to a place and instill a friendly dictator and have them work with your banana company this is yeah, where this the term totally banana great. republic comes from and um and everyone on in the episode seems pretty okay with this overall in fact this you know instead of seeing the situation being like holy smokes um we should maybe just stop interfering they just kind of like, well, we got to change it for some reason, so they do. And uh, and so we have a situation where, effectively, the Federation's taken over this planet, has their puppet dictator, and this puppet dictator can now run the planet however they see fit, 
and the Federation isn't going to be worried too much other than uh, get some fraction of the money that will be going back apparently to fund education or something. Yep. But also by making it about <laughs> money, they've given him an incentive to do nothing but make as much money as possible as the planet's one and only dictator. Yes. And uh, now that there's no external threats, they all are all working for him. The only threats are, you know, attempts to move, uh, the, you know, between different levels in, in, inside the organization. Uh, and that can be discouraged with the sort of uh, ominous threat of the Federation might not like it if you, you know, uh, bump me off here. Because uh, I'm the one in charge, so you better make sure you don't piss them off, otherwise it'll be bad news for you. Uh, and so it uh, becomes a very rigid, becomes unresponsive system, and is now going to never get that uh, that street lamp uh, fixed. Yeah. So everything There's that no was wrong to... with it when they got here is now worse. Yes. And <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it's so you know, the you know I guess if you were in Kirk's position, the better option would be perhaps to leave it with a all right this is a book that is about a specific uh specific time period us and our federation we've grown beyond that we're not going to say you have to change your ways at all but we're just kind of hinting 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 that maybe you guys can get beyond this if they basically think that the people are going to imitate anything that they read do they not have any books on board about the Earth's golden age when they got rid of racism and poverty. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, right? <laughs> just you know, just drop a couple copies in, it'll be fine. <laughs> it is also a little weird that they decided to, uh, you know, go fully on board with just this one book. I know that's it's part of the plot convenience of it all, but it's like, why would anyone ever do that? <laughs> I mean, you need a Bible. How's it, how is you going to function? But didn't they already have one in the society? That tells you what to do. <laughs> or are they just that uncreative as far as people go? Apparently they're incredibly uncreative. They said that they were at the beginnings of industrialization when the other ship got there, so they must have had their own society. Yeah, so they had some sort of society, but it's now completely erased. Uh, completely forgotten, uh, completely upturned. Uh, and uh, And they have decided to just straight up abandon it. Which I guess is maybe an interesting sort of weird psychological problem. Um, but um, that doesn't make sense either unless these uh, folks have very alien psychology compared to ours. Yeah. Because uh, this might be a good way to segue into uh, you know something I want to talk about. Um, the term cargo cult. Hmm. Are you familiar with that at all, no. Gibbon? So it's the short version uh, is that the term was coined uh, in relation to... Uh, you know, native societies, mostly in like Pacific Islands and things like that, that began to uh, imitate, uh, you know, you know, you know, either is is dress, behaviors, or even by building structures, various uh, military or you know, you know, you know external cultural sort sort of uh, habits uh, follow uh, during and following uh, various interactions they had with uh, outsiders, um, most notably World War II, uh, though this started happening well before that in various places. Uh, and so they would, the, the cargo pit would be that they start doing these sort of things in order to uh, basically 
contact the spirits, ancestors, gods, whatever, in order for airdrops to suddenly pop up and start dropping food and various uh, equipment on them. Because that happened at that one point when these bunch of weird foreigners showed up and they did these things. So clearly this is going to be how you do it, right? Hmm. Of course, the term is very sort of reductive as far as the general ideas and uh, social dynamics going on. Because a lot of these uh, sort of, uh, you know, cult sort of uh, groups that uh, get up to this sort of stuff, even to this day, uh, started this as not necessarily just about getting stuff. It was sort of a, all right, well, we are going to sort of, we, we, we need, we have some sort of problem in our society and we are going to be engaged in sort of um, uh, some sort of reformist sort of movement in order to sort of uh, re-encourage those former values but we're going to be using this sort of new uh, trappings, this new sort of um, uh, uh, facade on it that these, you know, we are encountering this weird stuff going on. There's suddenly this World War thing going on out there and these, there's thousands of troops and they're shooting at each other just offshore over there. And so this is some sort of apocalyptic sort of event. So this is clearly something involving our old, uh, you know, belief system and we need to sort of reinterpret it in order to sort of make this all make more sense. And so uh, you get sort of, you know, a revival of bits of the older cultures. Just now you are wearing sort of mock-ups of army uniforms instead. So it's a little strange for someone from the outside, but it's sort of, there's there's definitely um, core elements of the previous culture being sort of carried forward into this sort of emulation sort of stuff. It's kind of interesting when you put it that way because we don't think of it as this because it happened so long ago. But if you look at our, you know, modern belief system cultures, you have a lot of holidays and traditions that got mixed in from other places around Europe mm-hmm. that yeah, we now think of as a cohesive whole. But they were all just a hodgepodge of various beliefs and ceremonies that you know, happened around the same time of year or that were manipulated into being, hey, believe in our thing now because it's just like this. Mm-hmm. So our, you got our harvest festival, we got our planting festival, we got our, you know, uh, you know, uh, solstice festival, and we're going to be involving gifts on this one and different things on the others and sweet things on this other bit here. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's this other one's going to be uh, an intense gathering of people to uh, feast on the bounty from this year's crops, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and we're going to trap uh, put trappings of religiousness uh, of various sorts on some of these, not but not the more recent ones like Thanksgiving's a little more secular, um, though it is pilgrimage anyway. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's there's sort of um, I'm trying to think of the term again. I keep I keep forgetting this one. I've been trying to bring it up in my head for a while. Um, uh, syncretic. There we go. Uh, sort of a, a you know syncretic sort of attachment to this external thing from a you know a, a neighboring culture or religion whatever, and then over time it becomes more integrated fully. Well, people are just like they say that this culture or whatever is very imitative, which is a weird word, but <laughs> uh, humans just naturally imitate each other. It happens. So. A culture like seeing things in another culture that work okay or that you like or just look interesting is going to get layered on top of it. Yeah, I, you know, I guess in a uh, 
uh, sort of a funky example is uh, Americans who are really into anime. Yeah, that's a melding of cultural <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah it's, it's a an art form that is you know partially itself inspired by you know stuff from outside of Japan, but is when it, it's it's sort of imported to the U.S. It's sort of uh, to a certain extent, still retains a certain uh, large section of its uh, core elements, but it also has its own sort of interpretations, its own uh, uh, ad- adaptations, its own sort of cultural significance uh, that in some ways is very similar to what it is in Japan, but it also has uh, divergent elements that is more reflective of the American audience. And you're right. Many of these things, and if you had this freaking episode done in any kind of interesting way, You'd have whatever existing culture was there with this mm-hmm. layered on it. Yes. Instead of giving up whatever your old culture was completely. <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know so as you know said it's a little ridiculous to say it's just completely gone. It's like unless that former culture was weirdly mafia style or it was a feudal society uh, of a certain sort, and it just sort of changed all the names and I had atomic guns. Yeah, I suppose they could have. Yeah. But they probably should have mentioned that that was sort of what it was like beforehand. <laughs> they didn't think of that. They didn't think this yeah. through at all. <laughs> nope. As I said earlier, it's a very silly episode. <laughs> well, that's basically everything that I had. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, I guess I could, you know, you know, talk a little bit more about uh, the quote uh, cargo cults and uh, how how some of them are a little absurd points, but I, I would just be making fun of people. I don't want to do that. So John from is, is, is kind of an interesting prom, uh, pun in a way. Cause it's, it's spelled F R U M, but pronounced from. So it's like, this is John from South America. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, <laughs> that's all I, I got as, uh, as far as uh, core stuff there. Uh, unless I wanted to go through some of my, uh, my collected uh, 1920s-isms, if you want, want to hear some of those. <laughs> yeah, do we just have a giant list of 1920s slang? No, I, I got a, f- uh, a few things here. Um, so, heater gu- is gone, of course. Uh, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, you got, uh, let's say, uh, iron is a car. Yeah, because yeah, it's made of iron, I guess. Um, but jalopy, of course, is an old car, but that's one's a little more, more uh, known. People still use that. Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, to do what's um, speakeasy, of course, is an illicit bar selling bootleg liquor, liquor, of course. Um, to do what's one that doesn't isn't so modern here. Uh, spinach, guess what that one is? Uh, random canned vegetables. Well, yeah, yeah, in the in the straightforward bit, but those those vegetables tend to be green, right? Mm. Oh, like so monies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, uh, weak sister. What's that? What, what do you think that one is? Hmm, I don't know. A pushover. Uh. You're just a weak sister, you know, buddy. <laughs> uh, that's another fun one here. Um, hmm, paste. What do you think that one is, Gepwin? Chewing tobacco. No, this one's actually. An action. Oh, like hitting someone really badly? Yep. So they to, uh, to punch someone. Yeah. I'm gonna paste you. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. Do, do, do. What does egg mean? I don't know. It could either be some like a weak person because they break easy, 
Where? Where? I'm not so sure what the thing. etymology is on this one, but it means man. <laughs> oh, okay. It's like, uh, um, uh, here's an unfortunate one. Um, uh, it's, uh, frail, which means woman. Hmm. Yeah. Not too, not too, uh, friendly. These, uh, gangster, f uh, 20 peoples, uh, do, do, uh, croaker. What is a croaker? Oh, I've heard this. What is that? <laughs> it's an old That's dude. A doctor. Oh, it's a doctor. Because if you die, you croak. Mm. Get it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll do a couple more here. Um, what's a dip? I'm not a like, dumb person. Not in this case. Doesn't have to do with cars. <laughs> no. Let's let's say you are you are dipping. What? Who would be say an action you're doing? So it's like your dance partner. Not quite, but well, there is somebody else there. They might not be knowing they're dancing, though. No idea. Uh, pickpocket. Oh, okay. You're dipping your hand in their pocket. Uh, one more, one more. Uh, that's a good one. Um, oh, gooseberry lay. No, <laughs> well, gooseberry is a kind of berry wrapped in a weird papery shell. Don't know if I'm thinking along the right line. Extended, maybe? I'm not quite <laughs> sure, actually. No idea. So, Unless it's sexual. So, uh, so when uh, Kirk and Spock were uh, transported back to the 30s in uh, City on the Edge of Forever, uh, what was the one of the first things they did? They stole clothes? Yep. <laughs> Specifically, though, this one's stealing clothes from a clothesline. <laughs> Gooseberry Lay. <laughs> so, I don't know, because uh, uh, I guess it's paper coverings, you're getting yourself covered, and the lay is the clothesline, I guess? I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of other terms like grifter, con man, of course, guy is a man, um, you, know, uh, you know, to take a dive, you know, to, you know you take a dive, you know, um, you know. Various other ones are, are pretty straightforward as far as you know, what they uh, are because they're still in common use of, in some fashion. Mm. But yeah, there's, there's a, a number of ones that are just kind of weird. It's like, what? <laughs> some of those seem to have died for a reason. Yes. Some of them with a good reason, you know? <laughs> All right. We probably spent long enough on 20s slang. I think now it's probably time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Hey everybody, it's the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where our various contestants have been uh, racking up the points, uh, and uh, perhaps getting some of mine here. I, I appear to be, um, well, they're pointing some Tommy guns at me right now, and they've taken all my wallets. Yes, I have several. I'm just that kind of awesome. Anyway, our first award uh, is the What Prime Directive Award, which goes to Kirk for roughly getting the, 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 the whole bunch of points on this one. Around the time, he just sort of throws his hands up and decides, screw it, let's unite the planet and take over. What does he win, Kepwin? Kirk wins. Just He needs a copy of Civilization so he can play these games on the computer instead of messing with planets. Yeah, that's what uh, kept me from taking over the world. 
Anyway, our uh, second award is the Fanboy Award, which goes to all the gangster and mafia peoples, Krakow and uh, Oxmix and all that, because uh, you know, all over the planet, because they do love them some 1920s American mafia culture. What do they win, Capone? All the mobsters get to win. I don't know, I'm in a video game mood. They get all the old Fallout games. <laughs> all 1920s culture with Tommy guns and weird stuff. It's fun. <laughs> Excellent. I think they'll be uh, enjoying themselves there, and they might uh, get themselves uh, in a situation where maybe the society around them is able to evolve somewhat. Hmm. Anyway, our third award is the Officially Advanced Aliens Award, which actually goes to the Federation, and specifically Enterprise, with respect to the locals, because they could rain death from above whenever they feel like. When do they win, Gepwin? The Federation gets the, the Dictatorship Award, I suppose. They've been doing this to, like, every planet they've found so far, and this is the first time it's just been called out, but now they're calling it good. Which gets to our last award, <laughs> the Good Guy Imperialism Award, which also goes to the Federation, and Kirk specifically for basically, in the end, taking over an advanced feudal society, and yeah, just, yeah, yeah, they, they, they take, they need to take some time out to... to Get this all sorted and just make it not awful. What do they win, Jeff? I think they should at this point just get the monocles and pit helmets and make it official. All right. So, uh, Kirk, uh, uh, go on your, your, your safari and just leave everyone else alone, please. That's all I got, Gepwin. Uh, I hope that everyone enjoyed their prizes at least as much as they enjoyed taking over a planet. And thank you all for joining us on this, the galaxy's favorite game show! So by my count, this is episode 49, mm-hmm. and that means the next episode is episode 50. Yeah, and we, we tend to do something on the, on the 10s, right? Yeah, and this is a particular milestone. It's like half of 100. Yeah, we've been doing this for a while. Holy smokes, almost a whole year. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. That... Yeah, but what have we done with our lives? <laughs> <laughs> well, generally, this means that we are very tired of watching these silly, silly, silly old Star Trek episodes. You know, we need to give our brains a break. Oh, Wait, we're supposed to give our brains a break? So, we usually just have one of us pick a sci-fi movie that we don't have to think about, because that's how sci-fi movies work. Of course, right? Hmm. I feel nervous suddenly. <laughs> Well, I picked the last one, so now it is Isaac's turn to pick one of his favorite sci-fi movies to cover. Well, um, are are you familiar with uh, geometry? Vaguely. Um, what's a uh, elongated, uh, you know, uh, uh, prism-like uh, item that is uh, solid black and sometimes is uh, propped upright? Uh, near some monkeys. I don't think that that's actually the proper geometric term for that. Probably not, no. <laughs> I'm pretty sure an elongated prism is a is a triangular prism. Like, prism is True. just the term. <laughs> you would be talking about a rectangular prism. There, rectangular prism, there we go. <laughs> so we're watching the movie Obelisk. <laughs> Clearly, no. We're going to be watching 2001 A Space Odyssey. Ooh. That's going to be a hard one. 
I said, you know, it's like we're going to be having to take our, uh, give our brains a break. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we usually alternate who writes the synopsis, so I look forward to seeing how you manage to write something that has 20 minutes of dialogue for a two-hour movie. Well, you know, I, can, I can build up excitement. I can uh, give some ambiance occasionally. And, uh, and then for the other 10 minutes of the uh, 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 synopsis, I'll mention some things that happened, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then still have five minutes left over. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, this should probably be a very fast synopsis for this one, so it'll give us some interesting time to actually think about it and figure out what the ending means. Hmm, I, I've seen uh, the, the sequel. I've read at least one of the, the sequels as well. So I, I have some spoilers on that, but yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, but as far as the movie itself, as is, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's things to talk about very much as far as Okay, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> Alright, so I haven't watched that in ages. I think an anniversary or something came up because they were running a lot of news stories and radio stories about it recently. And, uh, then we all start humming Blue Danube. <laughs> it's in unison. It's really weird. Hmm. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> but we can go find and watch that is considered an absolute classic of American science fiction. Next week will be 2001, A Space Odyssey. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. My God, it's full of stars. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principal, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>